This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Nathan Seen, and thank you for joining us for today's Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we have the second of a two-part podcast on the important clinical practice guideline regarding mechanical ventilation in ARDS that was published in the May 1st American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. I'm once again glad that the co-chair of the committee that wrote this clinical practice guideline, Dr. Eddie Fan has taken time out of his busy schedule to join us. Dr. Fan is an associate professor in the Interdepartmental Division of Critical Care Medicine and the Institute of Health Policy, Management, and Evaluation at the University of Toronto. Eddie, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time and staying with me for part two of our discussion. No problem. Happy to be here. Excellent. So just as a quick recap for our listeners, in our prior podcast, Eddie and I discussed the three strong recommendations that came out of the guideline for low pressure, low tidal volume ventilation, for 12 hours of prone positioning and severe ARDS, and against routine use of high frequency oscillatory ventilation in adults with ARDS. Today, we're going to discuss the, the group's other three recommendations, um, and I want to first talk about your conditional recommendations. First, Dr. Fan, your committee made a conditional recommendation for higher PEEP in moderate or severe ARDS. How did the group come to this conclusion? Thanks, Nitin. Um, uh, again, we, using the methodology for the guidelines, performed an updated systematic review and meta-analysis looking at the available randomized controlled trials on higher versus lower PEEP. And as our guideline pointed out, our um, Evidence synthesis revealed no significant difference in mortality between higher versus lower PEEP groups. Um, however, the panel considered um, also a very recent high-quality individual patient data meta-analysis of the three largest uh, PEEP randomized control trials, uh, Alveoli, Loves, and Express, that was published in JAMA by Marcus Briel. And in that meta-analysis, they demonstrated that patients with moderate or severe ARDS ARDS randomized to higher PEEP had significantly lower mortality uh, with no significant effect amongst patients with mild ARDS. And so swayed by that um, more recent high quality individual patient data meta-analysis and some of the limitations of our updated uh, evidence synthesis, we issued a conditional recommendation for higher levels of PEEP in uh, patients with moderate or severe ARDS. Well, thanks for explaining that. And I did want to follow up because I think this is, I'm sure you guys spent a significant amount of time discussing this. And if you want to share any of your backstories, feel free. But um, I certainly want your opinion on, on how do you even, you know, you, you take the best data you have. But even as you mentioned, in, in two of those three studies that are the largest studies um, to look at um, high versus low PEEP, they were using PEEP tables. And I think we know from prior work that using FiO2 and PEEP tables may not predict uh, the patients who are responders versus non-responders. 
to higher levels of PEEP. So um, I, I just, uh, as an, an initial question, say how do you sort of take that into account when you're doing this evaluation? I think that's a very um, good question and a very important question and one that we discussed at length, how to operationalize this recommendation. Like, as you said, how do you go to the bedside and actually apply uh, quote unquote higher levels of PEEP and who do you apply that in? And I would say um, the field is still evolving in that regard. Uh, more and more research um, and publications of clinical experience seem to report all kinds of methods to titrate people at the bedside, including strategies using things like the stress index, uh, esophageal pressure monitoring, electrical impedance tomography, amongst others. The unfortunate thing is, is that there really is a paucity of high quality clinical data or, or trial data comparing these different strategies head to head. And therefore, as a panel, there was nothing for us to review and issue a recommendation uh, more specific about one strategy over the other I think you'll see in our guideline, we mentioned that at best, what we could say is that since the meta-analysis used the three trials, using any of those strategies at the outset uh, might be a good starting point for titrating higher levels of PEEP. What I, what I might say personally is that using that as a starting point, we still use uh, PEEP FO2 tables in our ICU to titrate PEEP because again, that was one of the strategies used in the LOVES trial. And the readers or listeners may be aware of a very nice study by David Cumello from Italy that was published in Critical Care Medicine showing that actually when comparing physiologic ways of setting PEEP and the PEEP FIO2 table, the only method that seemed to reliably assign higher levels of PEEP to patients with greater lung recruitability or sicker lungs was the PEEP FIO2 table compared to the express method or the stress index or esophageal pressure monitoring. So it seems like a reasonable starting point. And I would say that, again, using more non-invasive tools at the bedside, like esophageal manometry or electrical impedance tomography, might give us additional information to help figure out how better to titrate PEEP and individualize uh, mechanical ventilation in some of these sicker patients. Well, thank you for pointing out that study. And uh, I think that is a good point that, that um, using some of those other methods um, have been consistently demonstrated giving people higher PEEP. But I guess the, the open question is, well, maybe then you're identifying patients who don't need higher PEEP. Um, I would ask you, if you don't mind, for an anecdote, it'd be interesting to see, do, do you use a FiO2 PEEP table in your clinical practice, recognizing I'm not talking about what your expert group um, came up with with a guideline. I'm just asking about your own personal experience. I think that would be interesting for our listeners. Yeah, yes. In our ICU, our current ventilatory protocols for um, ARDS and even non-ARDS patients have PEEPFO2 tables as the initial method of setting PEEP. So I would say the standard currently in our ICU is to start with that. And then again, for the vast majority of patients, at least in my experience, the PEEPFO2 table does reasonably well at assigning moderate or higher levels of PEEP in patients with sicker lungs. And it's really those patients who are more challenging, um, abdominal trauma, major intra-abdominal surgery or catastrophe, patients that are very obese um, and have very stiff chest walls. These are the patients where we think often about taking it a step further and employing some other strategy where the PEEP FO2 starts things off and then we 
perhaps put an esophageal balloon in and measure their um, esophageal pressures and try to fine-tune the PEEP setting a bit further and typically find that it's in those patients where these, these extra maneuvers may be more useful or more helpful than the PEEP FiO2 table. Oh, I think that's really interesting. Uh, and, you know, I've, I heard from colleagues who also routinely uh, will use esophageal balloons being surprised how much they underestimated the PEEP um, and that when they put the balloon in, that certainly helped optimize uh, mechanical ventilation. But again, that's not a standard practice, and we're still awaiting more data, as we uh, discussed in uh, part one of our podcast. Uh, so I want to move on now to your fifth recommendation, and this was another conditional recommendation, uh, and this regards recruitment maneuvers uh, in moderate. Uh, you made a conditional recommendation for recruitment maneuvers in moderate or severe ARDS. And obviously, um, you guys uh, have spent uh, a tremendous amount of time <laughs> trying to answer difficult questions to make life uh, easier for the rest of us. But, um, you know, it certainly is a difficult question. And I, I wanted your, your uh, take on this. Since, you know, recruitment maneuvers are, have often been studied in the context of studies looking at the optimal PEEP, as we just discussed in the last question. And uh, it appears to me certainly many times in, in my clinical practice that the patients who receive lower PEEP are the ones who tend to be responsive, more responsive to recruitment maneuvers. So um, trying to decipher that data, how did the committee reach your conditional recommendation for recruitment maneuvers in moderate or severe ARDS? Yes, this was also challenging. And I think the points that you raise here, uh, Nitin, actually apply to many of the questions we considered in the guideline, um, which is the fact that many of these interventions are typically not made in isolation uh, and are usually packaged together. For instance, many trials tested a bundle of interventions such as lower tidal volumes, maybe higher levels of PEEP with or without recruitment maneuvers, and in order to make recommendations about any particular uh, intervention in that bundle, we needed to unpack the studies that were available to see the ones that were not confounded by other co-interventions. And this really was at the heart of our recommendation for recruitment maneuvers, because although there were a number of randomized control trials examining recruitment maneuvers, it was exactly as you stated. Many of them also tested a strategy of recruitment maneuvers with higher levels of PEEP. And so in our primary analysis uh, for all the questions, including the recruitment maneuver one, where we wanted to consider only randomized control trials that were unconfounded by co-interventions for recruitment maneuvers, it ended up that there was only one small RCT available in the end that wasn't confounded by other interventions, such as higher PEEP. And in that particular RCT, recruitment maneuvers were significantly associated with lower mortality. But unfortunately, because it was a small, single RCT, that led to us having low confidence in the estimate of effect and led to the uh, conditional recommendation that we have for recruitment maneuvers in moderate or severe ARDS. We're hopeful that there will be more data coming, though. Um, the listeners may be aware that the South Americans have recently con concluded a large a uh, trial called the alveolar recruitment for ARDS trial that will have results soon looking at recruitment maneuvers, as well as the ongoing FARLAP trial in Australia and New Zealand that's also testing a staircase recruitment maneuver strategy. 
Well, just to follow up, I think, you know, as you point out, um, looking at that, when you take out the, the co-interventions, you're left with that, that one um, uh, trial. Um, and you do point out that the optimal method timing and target population for recruitment maneuvers um, requires further study. So I wanna, I'd like to ask you for your opinion, because when we talk to people about, you know, they read guidelines and they say, well, I'm still not sure how I can, should do this in my individual patient. Obviously there wasn't enough data um, for you, for the group to recommend optimal method timing or patients that are most appropriate. Um, but then I'd, I'd ask anecdotally for your experience, um, uh, how do you, when you use a recruitment maneuver clinically, how do you use it? Again, with the caveat, this is not out of the guidelines. Sure. And I think this is also an ongoing area of uh, evolution in our practice uh, in Toronto, in, at least in my uh, intensive care unit, where having participated in a number of large uh, randomized controlled trials of ventilatory interventions uh, here in Canada, the LOVE study, for instance, and then the Oscillate study, both of those studies try to use an open lung strategy that employed conventional ventilation in LOVES and high-frequency oscillation in Oscillate but both also use sustained inflation recruitment maneuvers, a breath hold of 30 centimeters of water or 40 centimeters of water for 30 or 40 seconds. And culturally, our intensive care units have been pretty wedded to that kind of recruitment maneuver in patients that we felt would respond. And typically these, when I say respond, these would be typically patients that were PEEP responders. So they tolerated high, higher levels of PEEP. We might try a recruitment maneuver in those patients. I would say in the last few years, based on the data that's accumulating, we've transitioned away from sustained inflation maneuvers, which seem to be not as effective at recruiting the whole lung. There seems to be a bimodal distribution where quite a few lung units may not be recruited, maybe more hypotension, desaturation, and arrhythmias with the breath hold requiring more sedation, analgesia, neuromuscular blockade. We're moving slowly to more incremental PEEP or staircase type recruitment maneuvers like those described by Carol Hodgson, who's another panelist. Uh, in a publication in critical care, which they're also studying now in the FARLAP trial, or um, incremental PEEP strategies resulting in title recruitment like those in Marcelo Amato's previous Blue Journal paper um, about uh, that kind of recruitment. Uh, he was also a panel member. So at least anecdotally, we're moving more towards these incremental PEEP or staircase recruitment strategies and away from sustained inflation maneuvers. And again, targeting typically patients who have more homogeneous or bilateral infiltrates on their chest x-ray and seem to be peep responders at the bedside. Well, well, thank you for that. That's uh, helpful. And, and as you mentioned, hopefully in terms of the, the timing and population for people, um, for, the, for the most appropriate patients for those peep responders, hopefully those um, ongoing and completed trials will provide further guidance. Um, I did want to now get to your final recommendation. Um, and that regards ECMO. And we could probably have a whole podcast about ECMO and ARDS. Um, but let me summarize um, your recommendation and ask you to comment. So uh, the committee's recommendation was that additional evidence is needed regarding ECMO and ARDS. And I think the thing, I'm sure you've noticed that this as well, but certainly in the U.S. we've seen as it's become technically easier to put patients on VV ECMO at the bedside. Um, there's been a significant increase in its use in ARDS. 
despite, um, as we know, there's a paucity of available data. Um, you mentioned in the guidelines several ongoing trials studying ECMO and other extracorporeal support in ARDS. So um, I guess what I'd want to know from you as, as an expert at looking at clinical trials, you know, when people talk about CSER, um, they, there are criticisms because people were transferred to an ECMO center, that the standard of care maybe at the referring centers wasn't the same as the referral as as the care at the referral centers use of other therapies so what should we be looking at when we look at these studies that are going to be published for ECMO and ARDS to assess the quality of those studies if you could give us some general principles thanks for the question and obviously this was a very difficult question but we thought very topical and, and necessary to tackle uh, at the outset of these uh, guidelines exactly because there's been an explosion in ECMO use not only in the United States and North America but really in many jurisdictions around the world since H1N1 uh, has come. And uh, as you mentioned, because of the limitations of CSER, which is really the only modern randomized control trial that was available for us to consider for this recommendation, there's insufficient data to answer specifically the efficacy of ECMO for severe ARDS uh, patients. So the OLEA trial, which is an international multi-center randomized control trial of VV ECMO within the first seven days uh, as compared to best conventional mechanical ventilation, uh, including a trial of prone positioning for severe ARDS, we hope will help to answer the, the question or shed more light uh, on the potential efficacy of ECMO for this specific indication. It's actually completed enrollment uh, in April, and we're anxiously awaiting the results, which may come later this year or early next year. I think one of the strengths, and to disclose I'm an investigator uh, in the AOLEA trial, but one of the strengths we hope of the trial is, is that um, both uh, the conventional or control group and the ECMO arm were heavily protocolized, including the ventilation practices in those arms, and centers that had ECMO outreach or referral for ECMO were centers in France that were already highly experienced in this practice. Um, so we await the results uh, and hope they will help us to have a better understanding of where ECMO may fit for these patients. We added some additional comments about uh, lower flow extracorporeal CO2 removal as a potential adjunct to mechanical ventilation to allow for further reductions in mechanical ventilation intensity and maybe allow more ultra-protective or super-protective um, mechanical ventilation for ARDS. A few studies are already underway that we listed in the guidelines, Supernova uh, as one and rest the REST study in the UK as another. And hopefully those trials, again, will shed some light on potentially a different form of extracorporeal support that may help us to provide even more lung-protective ventilation in these patients with moderate to severe ARDS. Well, thanks for uh, giving us that perspective. And I did want to follow up a, a bit. Um, so as you mentioned, you're a, uh, an investigator in, um, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'll say Eolia, E-O-L-I-A. Um, and that care appears to be more protocolized. So the patients who are getting referred should have had standardized care, which will be an improvement over some of the limitations we discussed in in, in Caesar. Um, I wonder now, in outside of the ability to, uh, you know, in the context of a clinical trial, 
Um, at this point, who are you considering someone as an appropriate candidate for um, ECMO and ARDS? Again, recognizing uh, that this is not something that the committee came to a consensus. The consensus was clearly they have to, more research is required. Agreed. I think currently we are considering cases for ECMO where there is life-threatening hypoxemia typically uh, that isn't responsive to best conventional mechanical ventilation and other adjunctive strategies. So typically these patients are young, have relatively single organ failure without a lot of pre-morbid or comorbid conditions that may preclude their candidacy uh, because they may be more prognostic on their outcome than their respiratory failure. They have a reversible cause of respiratory failure. And again, the compelling thing being that despite low tidal volume ventilation, optimal PEEP, sedation, analgesia, neuromuscular blockade, and a trial of prone positioning where that hasn't been uh, contraindicated, in those patients who fail those measures, those would be the patients that we're typically considering for uh, ECMO uh, at my center currently. And again, we're hopeful that um, data will help us to better understand the efficacy of ECMO in these kinds of situations. And certainly at the present time, we carefully review all the cases that we put on. We're collecting the data clinically in a registry of our own and ensuring ongoing quality assurances about the cases that uh, and their outcomes uh, at the present time. Well, I, I wanted to thank you for being extraordinarily patient and taking the time uh, to uh, address our questions. Um, and, you know, there are so many, these, this is, again, such a, a difficult task uh, to, to, to do this sort of um, thoughtful analysis, to do it through the, the grade process, to try to, as you said, unbundle uh, many of these um, treatment uh, bundles and try to figure out a way you can make uh, uh, appropriate recommendations. Um, I'll ask you one final question, um, just to reflect on that process for you. If you could, I think it'd be, you know, you spent, your group spent uh, several parts of several years uh, going through this process uh, to come up with this and again, to make our lives easier and have a referring document that helps us take care of patients at the bedside. Um, and I wonder if you could take us behind the scenes and, and, and just sort of tell us um, if there's one or two things about this experience of developing these guidelines um, that you found uh, particularly instructive? Well, the guideline was quite an undertaking. And I think anytime you get in a room with world leaders and experts in the various areas that we investigated for the guideline, it's a fantastic learning opportunity for someone such as myself, and I think I might speak for the other junior members of the guideline committee, that it's a, it's a real learning experience uh, to hear, much like you tried to get at in this podcast, the behind the scenes or on the ground uh, experiences, opinions, and interpretations of the data that are available uh, from these opinion and thought leaders. Um, and it was really just a fantastic group of people to work with. Um, I think it was a very rewarding experience. I feel that the working group that comprised many of the junior members that formed the committee, along with some of our methodologists, really uh, did a fantastic job and really 
uh, enjoyed uh, working together and meeting at the various uh, ATS conferences to provide updates and and uh, console each other on the work ahead and the work behind us. Um, so I really think that despite all the hard work that went into the guideline, uh, the chance to work come together as a group and and work together was a fantastic uh, learning experience uh, for everyone. Well, Dr. Fan, I really uh, want to thank you both for. Uh, spending the time, um, uh, your group uh, putting the guidelines together, but also spending uh, the time on both parts of this podcast to break it down for us um, in plain language so we can uh, hopefully provide better care for our patients. Uh, so to our listeners, uh, I would like to thank you for listening to today's Out of the Blue podcast. I would encourage you, if you missed part one of our discussion, to go back into our archives and you can listen to that podcast and other Out of the Blue podcasts um, on atsjournals.org, where you find them archived in reverse chronological order. Or you can subscribe via iTunes by searching for American Thoracic Society or Out of the Blue. I'm Nithin Seem for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.